For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the In It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. A few weeks ago, I went to the Reform Conference, which is a three-day international drug policy reform conference sponsored by the Drug Policy Alliance. They hold it every two years, and this year it was in St. Louis. I met lots of people there who are working to end the drug war, including Dr. Sheila Vicaria, who was our guest on Episode 18, responding to the claims that marijuana causes mental illness and violence. And while I was at the Reform Conference, I also met today's guest, uh, former Sergeant Terry Blevins, and had some fascinating conversations with him on what changed his mind about the drug war and the perspective of law enforcement on these issues. So, Sergeant Blevins, welcome to the show. Hi, Christina. Thank you for having me. So, Sergeant Blevins began his career as a patrol officer with the Maricopa County Sheriff's Department and eventually became a detective. He later managed an international security firm before becoming a civilian investigator for the United States Department of Defense, working with the Joint Terrorism Task Force. He later worked in the U.S. Department of State Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement to advise the Iraqi government on the security of its oil and gas infrastructure. Uh, you're starting to get the, the the picture. He's been all around the world in his career. Um, after leaving public service, Sergeant Blevins became head of corporate security for a large gold mining conglomerate and for Apple's Beats by Dr. Dre. He's now president and CEO of Armaplex Security Group, a Los Angeles-based security firm. Uh, and this is only actually just part of his bio. And if that sounds like he's already lived a full life, he's also fluent in Spanish and conversational in Portuguese and French. So, Sergeant Blevins, how did you get interested in police work? Let's take it back first uh, before what changed your mind on drug policy. But how did you even get into the um, law enforcement field? Sure. Well, you know, I came from a, a I was really fortunate to come from a family that had been involved in public service and and service to others. My parents were were uh, pastors and missionaries. That's how I, you know, I learned a couple foreign languages as a child. So, you know, I, I, you know, plus I didn't really see myself becoming a pastor. So I, uh, I was interested in, you know, public service and helping other people, but I also liked adventure. So, you know, I thought that, that getting into law enforcement and I had, we'd had some other family members in law enforcement. I always thought it was a noble, you know, line of work. And I, I, you know, probably had some, you know, delusions, some ill-conceived uh, or mis- you know mistaken notions mm-hmm. about the, exactly what it was. But I got into it for you know for the right reasons, and um, I I just started out as a deputy sheriff and ended up spending you know I ended up working for the federal government for a while and uh, basically ended up spending you know close to twenty years in public service. So. So you're a speaker now with the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, which is the group that you were helping to represent at the Reform Conference. We've had a lot of um, LEAP speakers um, on the End It For Good podcast, and you advocate now for an end to a criminal approach to drugs. Did you always feel that way about drug policy? I really didn't. I In high school, I smoked a little marijuana like everybody did. Didn't really see a big problem with it when I became a police officer a couple of years later they 
uh, uh, I, I saw that there was, you know, they weren't going to allow me to be a police officer if uh, if I had smoked marijuana on a regular basis, something more than experimental. And I didn't really understand that. I felt like that was an overreaction. And then something happened just a short time after I was out of the police academy. I I was uh, I was on FTO uh, field uh, training. I was with my uh, field training officer, and uh, we just I'd only been out. You know, I still wasn't even uh, experienced enough to go out on my own. And we pulled over a car, uh, just did a traffic stop, and the driver was a young black man, and you know he was respectful and well dressed, and um, it, you know we uh, when we approached the car, my training officer smelled marijuana coming from inside the car, so he said we're going to search the car. So we searched the car, and we found part of a joint in the uh, you know marijuana joint in the in the ashtray and so we were you know i looked at my training officer what do we do and he said we're gonna we arrest him for possession of marijuana and he said go ahead and arrest him so um you know this young man said you know asked he said well he said can i just ask you guys how this is gonna affect my record and I didn't know. My training officer said, "Well, you know, it's a felony. You, you'll have a felony arrest on your on your record." And so the young man said, uh, um, "You know," he said, "Is there any way other other way to handle this?" He said, "I have. A, I just recently received a um, a full scholarship um, to an Ivy League school. I, I don't remember today exactly what the school was, but I remember that it was an Ivy League school." And uh, he he said, if if I have a felony arrest, I will lose that scholarship. And it really shocked me. I thought, wow, what are we doing here? You know, this is something mm-hmm. that I literally just did. You know, a couple of years ago, I was smoking weed, and now this we're going to ruin this kid's life. You know, and my training officer was really indifferent to it. Um, and so we ended up arresting him, and I remember to this day, the, you know, the look on the young man's face, you know, and, and the tears running down his face when he was in the back of the patrol car. He knew that his life was over, and, you know, I, I never followed up with that, so I don't have any follow-up information on it, but um, partially because I was so, you know, impacted by that. It was really, really hurtful. And I, honestly, I wondered... If, you know, that day if I should quit because I just I wasn't sure that I could handle that type of thing. So even though I was opposed to marijuana, you know, and I, I you know, as a, I, in general, I felt like that, that you know, that it, it should be illegal, um, that and just other experiences throughout my career really helped to sort of uh, over the decades just, you know, show me how futile the war on drugs was and how it ruined people's lives. And then eventually, when I became open to this idea, the fact that it actually adversely affects communities of color, I really started to see that as well. And uh, just really, literally within the last few years, I, I have I have been convinced that, that all drugs should be legal, that, that drugs, drug abuse is more of a public health issue than it is a, a criminal issue.
Yeah, it's a great point that you make, and uh, people may not be aware <clears throat> when you talk about its uh, disparate impact on communities of color. So even just here in Mississippi, um, if you are African-American, you are four times more likely to be arrested on a marijuana charge than if you are uh, white, and that is despite the fact that use rates here are uh, similar um, between um, African-American people and white people, actually white males are the, the highest users of marijuana of any group. So it's not that use rates are disparate and that's where the arrest disparities are coming in, but actually um, you're just more likely to be arrested um, if you are African-American or Latino than if you are um, white. I think that's what you're um referring to there. And that's true across the country. It's not just true here in Mississippi. We actually have, uh, we're about at the national average. Four times is about the national average. There's some states that it's actually much worse and some states that it's a little bit better. Um, But in every state except Hawaii, um, there is uh, racially disparate policing of marijuana arrests and other drug, drug arrests also. So we host community discussions once a month in different cities across Mississippi uh, where I present this kind of case for a, a legal regulated market for all drugs. Um, and at two of our last three of them, we've had a really strong attendance uh, presence by local law enforcement. Um, several of them, you know, uh, dressed in uniform and are coming. Now, they're not saying that they agree with legalization or decriminalization, but they have at least come to be part of the conversation, which is really amazing. We love that. Um, now, you do work. Uh, nationally, Sergeant Blevins. So what is your take on the pulse of law enforcement related to their openness to reform on drug policy? So, you know, I have, I have seen that there have been some, uh, some voices, uh, you know, in law enforcement that are talking about these things, but it's really uh, disappointing that there aren't, there isn't more uh, of a movement within law enforcement, or, or even an acceptance of, you know, the fact that that we need uh, uh, we need to reform. I, I had a really interesting situation. I was at a a reform conference, a roundtable discussion, and uh, there were a lot of really interesting things that were being said on both sides. There were uh, police commanders there, and there were also activists, and there were um, scholars, and you know, even some scientists, you know, who had done research and that sort of thing. And but at one point, um, there was um, a, a uh, an, an activist uh, who was uh, talking about um, you know reforming the police, and I didn't think that he was really saying anything. Uh, uh, you know, out of the ordinary, but there was a, um, a a police, one of the police commanders that was there, um, just started shaking his head and rolling his eyes, you know, as he was listening to this guy. And this is a roundtable discussion. Granted, there was probably 20-some people, but it, it was kind of an intimate uh, sort of setting. And so everybody looked at him when he was doing this, and, you know, um, and I felt really embarrassed because, you know, this was a three-day conference, and this had not happened during the entire conference. Nobody else was dismissive like this of anybody else, and so it really stood out. And I don't necessarily, I mean, blame him specifically. Yes, he should have should have had a different reaction, but I believe that he felt free to do that because that has been the response. 
whenever there's any discussion about uh, reform. And so I I was uh, really disappointed, and, and I just uh, – it, it was that moment when I realized, I said, you know what? Law enforcement, American law enforcement, we need to stop rolling our eyes when, regardless of how ridiculous we think that the statements that are being made about police reform, regardless of how ridiculous we think those are, there won't even be a discussion unless we stop rolling our eyes. We will get left out of the discussion. And it's really, it, it worries me because law enforcement has an important part to play and an important voice but if we don't start having these discussions and being open and stop being dismissive we're just we're going to get we're we're not going to be at the table anymore we're not going to get invited so if we just talk about marijuana legalization uh, a new study by pew research shows that 67 percent of all americans believe marijuana should be legal and that's actually true among republicans also it's uh it has just tipped over i think 50 percent of uh, Republicans believe that marijuana should be legal. That's pretty compelling numbers, um, though there is still, like you said, um, typically a lot of resistance by law enforcement to marijuana legalization. Uh, do you see that creating this uh, kind of divide between communities and, and their officers? Yes, I, I, I really do see uh, the, the whole marijuana issue as... Uh, basically a black eye on American uh, law enforcement. And I'll tell you, this this has been really forming in my head based on a number of experiences that I've had um, over the, the last few years. Because I'm so active in the, you know, the legalization uh, uh, activities here in California, I go to a lot of city council meetings, and community meetings and that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, I've even been invited by city councils to come in and speak to the the city council and the community and the, the police chief about the effects of, uh, you know, of legalization and the public safety implications. And uh, in one of those cities that I was in, I was talking to the police chief about, um, you know, allowing cannabis businesses to come into their uh, into their their community, and uh, he he felt he he was angry. Um, he said he felt like that um, marijuana legalization um, had really damaged the reputation of law enforcement um, in the U.S. and specifically his in his community. Um, he had originally, uh, when the city council was was contemplating whether or not to allow cannabis businesses to come into their community to, you know, license cannabis businesses to come into their community, um, he 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 opposed it because he was an an old time, you know, uh, opponent of marijuana, and so he uh, spoke at, at the city council meetings and raised objections some of the objections that now i'm sure some of the objections that now we know not to be true about how marijuana is a gateway drug and how that crime will go up you know Mm -hmm. he's worried that crime would go up in his communities um if they allowed cannabis businesses to come in and uh and so what they ended up doing was they ended up overriding him and you know he told me he said 
the city council used to listen to me. He said, if there was a any sort of issue that was on the table relating to, you know, that was related to public safety that they were considering, I would come in and I would give my advice, and they trusted me. And he said, and this this was uh, the first time that they have that they have overridden everything that I had to say and basically just pushed me to the side. And so I, you know, and this wasn't the only police chief that I heard this from. I've heard this from, you know, a lot of uh, leaders in law enforcement, uh, basically saying that, you know, we feel like that this whole legalization. But my my point is that I do believe it has hurt uh, the reputation of American law enforcement, but not for the same reasons. I, I think it hurt our reputation because we got it wrong for so long. You know, we were on the wrong side of this issue, and now we're seeing the American public is saying, you guys got it wrong. You know, if you got marijuana wrong, maybe you got other things wrong, too. I've actually had people, uh, I had a middle-aged, conservative-looking woman at a city council come up to me after a city council meeting and ask me that. She said, I know now that you support uh, legalization of marijuana, but why did you guys get it wrong for so long? You know, are, mm. are, are, is American, is, oh, she was using the word cops, you know, are our cops now getting other things wrong? And I, I mean, that's a legitimate question. I, I can see why people feel that way. So it's, you know, it's really frustrating. So the officers that I've talked to offline um, who have changed their minds on drug policy have commented on just how painful that change has been. You know, it's kind of this looking back on careers for some of them, you know, specifically in narcotics careers. And for some of them now, they look back and say, wow, I I feel like I actually participated in something that was harming people, even though my intent was really to help people. Um, So I empathize with the difficulty on that path that we're asking law enforcement officers to walk. What is the best way for people to support their local law enforcement, even if they don't agree with all of the laws they're currently enforcing? So... I believe that most men and women that work in law enforcement are good people and they have good intentions. Um, it's just, it's really hard uh, when you're in that. And I, I had to, uh, even though I'm open-minded and a progressive thinker in a lot of ways, I literally had to get out of law enforcement before I could really have perspective on this whole issue. So just be patient with, you know, with the, the police officers that, that, you know, that are still resistant to these things. I mean, like I said, I do think that we need to stop rolling our eyes, but just be patient with them because it, it's hard for them to get perspective. And if you try to, you know, force the issue, I'm not, it, it may eventually work, but, it, you know, it's, um, I think mainly we just need to show law enforcement that, that we, that, that the, these measures, these changes, these reforms are good for everybody, including the police officers. Because w- police officers shouldn't be saddled with solving all of society's problems. And if you talk to police officers and you ask them that, would you say that, you know, that over the last few decades, um, you know, that the, that, uh, the U.S. has basically asked us in law enforcement to solve all of society's problems, and and they would say yes. 
and you say, well, did they give you the resources, <laughs> you know, to mm, solve all right, of, right. uh, America's problems? And uh, uh, invariably, I'm sure they would say no. I mean, I've talked to, you know, dozens, maybe hundreds of police officers about this issue, and, and these are things that they agree on. And they also, they see when we arrest people for drugs, you know, uh, they see this, uh, you know, for, for you know, crystal crystal meth and crack cocaine and these other things, heroin, they see the same people cycling through the system over and over and over again. They don't see it working. So when you appeal to that side of them and ask them if they've had these experiences, you know, invariably they, they have, they, they're feeling frustration also mm-hmm. um, with the fact that, that it, it's not working and that there just aren't enough resources out there to, you know, to really help these people. Yeah, so yesterday we just did a um, community discussion in uh, another um, city in Mississippi, and one of the there was a number of law enforcement who were there, um, including their uh, sheriff and um, some of their other officers. And um, so one of the doctors who was at the um, at the discussion stood up during the discussion time. Everybody gets one minute to say you know what their response is to my presentation of a legal regulated market. Um, and one of the doctors said, you know. Uh, I see legal regulation as actually being pro-law enforcement because right now we have officers getting killed and injured uh, enforcing our drug laws, even though those laws are not getting us, you know, anywhere. But we're actually losing law enforcement um, tragically to these laws. It, it is not costless to law enforcement themselves um, to be involved in the drug war. It's a very dangerous activity, uh, drug policing. And so um, I thought that was a really interesting thing uh, that for him, he sees that not just as we're not we're not against law enforcement, but actually we this is one way to value law enforcement's uh, lives and um, and work to, you know, to take away something that we know is causing death in law enforcement um, in that community um, as well. So that was a really interesting point that he made. Um, if you could change one law related to drugs uh, that you think would do the most good for the most people, what would that be? So, Christina, I don't, I don't think that we're going to get uh, complete uh, legalization or even decriminalization at this point of all, you know, drugs, sale of drugs and, you know, mm-hmm. manufacturing, transport, that sort of thing. I think that probably the most realistic uh, thing that we can hope for at this point is the decriminalization of small amounts of, of mm-hmm. drugs. Um, we really, and I see this in the community, uh, I see people really gaining an understanding that drug abuse is more of a health problem than it is a, an arrest problem. Mm-hmm. And and I think we need to we need to get law enforcement on board with that and try to help them understand that that, that these issues especially, you know, people that are in possession of small amounts, they need to be dealt with um, in a completely different way. Arrest is not the answer. And so I think that's a really good place to start. Um, also we've got the Moore Act, which is in Congress right now. It's not perfect, but we feel like it's probably the best um, uh, sort of tool that we have at this point that's on the table that is pretty widely accepted. It's a, you know, marijuana, um, uh, you know, reform. 
marijuana and also, um, you know, uh, expunging criminal records for small amounts of marijuana and that sort of thing. So I think those are important. You know, if your listeners could get on board with you know, more, you know, I have a, there's a, a link to some information on, uh, on my Facebook page and, and on the Leap, uh, Facebook Leap recently published a letter um, that was signed by a lot, you know, judges and prosecutors basically saying, you know, we feel like it's time to uh, legalize marijuana because we're not, American law enforcement is not in a position any longer to, to enforce these laws. It is, da- our relationship is already almost irreparably, irreparably damaged with the community. And so marijuana is just making things worse. We really need to So have you had other experiences as we wrap up? Anything else you would like to share? Other experiences um, that have shaped the way that you think on these issues? Yeah, I I had a situation that, you know, and when I when I talk about some of these things, I, I actually a lot of people are really surprised by by some of these issues that that we face as police officers. But I had a situation where I we received a call from uh, a woman who said that her son had stolen some money from her. And so when I went out, uh, I responded to the call. I, the young man was there and he was, uh, just emaciated. Uh, I could tell that he had been strung out on meth and he didn't have a shirt on his, his pants were falling off of him. He had to cinch his belt up tight to even get his, his pants to stay on and his body was covered with meth sores and I could and you know I could just see that he was still high you you know they call them they call them uh, tweakers um, because it just the way that they act and everything and and you know he 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 said he confessed he said I took the money from my mom he said but that's not who I am he said I I love my mother he said I never thought that I would be that guy that stole money from my mother to buy drugs and uh, he said help me please he said you can arrest me but when I get out he said please help me get into you know rehab well the community that I was working in I tried I, I, I checked with with you know the facilities the ones that were free were full and had a waiting list there were others that that were super expensive. He didn't have the money or the insurance, and so basically, my only option at that point was to arrest this guy. And I'm sure that when he got out, that he probably was tempted to go back and do the, you know, go straight back to drugs. And most Americans think that people who have a drug problem have options. They think that if they want to get off, yeah, just go to a rehab. I, trust me, I can tell you that, you know, there are bigger, some of the b- big cities in the U.S. that have those options for people, but um, especially in mid to smaller size cities and rural areas, those options are just not available. And that's where we have the biggest, you know, sort of uh, crystal meth, um, you know, an opioid uh, problem is in rural America. And there are not options for these people. The young, and when the police are called the only option that they have is arrest. So I would just ask that people just try to have a little bit more of a, you know, common sense attitude towards these things and understand that, 
um, you know, the arrest is just really not the answer. Sergeant Terry Blevins, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Christina. You can learn more about the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, for whom Sergeant Blevins is a speaker, at lawenforcementactionpartnership.org. Um, I see them as such a critical voice in the reform movement because they are men and women who have worked in law enforcement, uh, worked in the court system. They're judges, they're prosecutors, they're uh, frontline officers, sheriffs, police chiefs, uh, and they're now using their voices to advocate for reforms on a variety of different issues, including drug policy. Uh, but they're not the only ones with a voice in this reform movement. If you are listening to this episode, you have a voice. And for your circle of influence, your voice matters more than someone that they don't know because they trust you. Um, and as Stephen Covey has famously said, change happens at the speed of trust. So if you share this episode or share something from our Facebook page and invite your circle of influence to reconsider a criminal approach to drugs, that's incredibly powerful, uh, particularly if you share it and you say, you know, this was really interesting. I've never thought about this aspect of law enforcement before or something like that that just allows um, the people who are who are watching what you're doing to see that you are engaging in this conversation. Um, so. Uh, you can share it. Uh, you don't have to be an expert. It's okay for you not to know all the answers. Um, just saying, hey, this is something I'm thinking about and something I think it's important to consider. And if somebody comments with a with an immediate question, well, what about this? Uh, it's totally okay to say, I'm not sure. I'm just saying, I think what we're doing isn't working and I'm considering other options. Um, that invites people into the conversation. You don't need to be an expert to be able to do that. Um, you're not going to do that even. You're not going to share um, because this is the world that I, Christina, or that Sergeant Blevins or that Mike wants to live in uh, with a legal regulated market where drugs are handled as a health issue. Um, the reason you would do that is because it is the world that you want to live in. And it's how you want to treat people and it's how you want to protect life and offer more people with an opportunity to thrive. And when enough of us work to build that kind of world, that's when it will happen. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.